0: Wonderful time of year it is to focus on the birth of Christ, what we sometimes refer to as the incarnation and virgin birth of our Lord and Savior. Incarnation that uh, God, Spirit, was made flesh. Uh, Miraculous, something that is really inexplicable. All we can do is describe it in terminology we really can't wrap our minds around it, what actually happened there. Uh, the writers of Scripture tell us that what was conceived in Mary was of the Holy Ghost. And, uh, you know, w- what an amazing thing that is. And, of course, I'm sure some people's minds, you know, go to, you know, well, exactly how did that happen? Well, you know, God made us as humans. Uh, he's the, the divine master of anatomy, and uh, he can bring about uh, new life in a person, any way he chooses to do that. And then, of course, it was a, the virgin birth. Uh, she was very clearly not known by any other man. And this was all foreseen, all foretold, all prepared by our Heavenly Father. And uh, what a wonderful way to usher in the Son of God into the world to be our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You know, sometimes a a community gets overlooked because of its small size. I I kind of like, uh, if we're not in a rush, taking trips, going through sometimes the back roads, going through some of these small communities and appreciate them. But uh, by and large, most people don't know anything about them. But every once in a while, one of these small communities gets some sort of, uh, focus, where all of a sudden the population swells because of people coming in. Uh, it could be a festival of some sort, and really it kind of puts the, the whole grid of that area on overload. I came across a, a little uh, news item a while back about one such community in a town called Marlinton, West Virginia. We've got some West Virginians here. Does anyone know where Marlinton is? Okay, a couple of you do. Okay. but uh, And maybe you know what, what Marlinton, this little sleepy community, is has become famous for. Uh, it has a poultry population of 994, last count. So not large. Uh, but each September on one weekend for the past 27 years, people rolled in from all over the area to this little tiny town of Marlinton. This past year, it had over 10,000 visitors come in, and what was the attraction? Well, it's called the Roadkill Cook-Off, and I think the name of it says it all, but the uh, The winner walks off with $1,200 of prize money, so there's some attraction there. This festival has grown to include live music, various kinds of attractions, other kind of food vendors that come in in case you're not up to roadkill for some reason. And they even have a pageant to determine who the next Miss West Virginia Roadkill will be. Now, as, uh, as fun as that might sound... Uh, We here even in Little River we know a little bit about being a a smaller in population uh, when you talk about just Little River itself and then getting kind of an explosion in the in the summertime when we have the Blue Crab Festival and you know for a lot of us that that may not really attend it uh, we're probably more grieved by the traffic than anything else uh, that happens But I say that simply to try to fix our minds on what it was like for little Bethlehem. There is a big little town in Bethlehem, if we could put it that way. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, and I know we read from the book of Luke, but I want to focus on the Old Testament verse here today. This prophecy and the importance of of this little community uh it even tells us uh in this verse that though thou be little among the thousands of judah the other small other villages that were there of course jerusalem the capital there in the same tribe would have been you know enormous in comparison but uh we sing about bethlehem we sang about it today it's a Precious Christmas hymn to us. At the time of Christ, the population, by best guesstimates, if we could put it that way, was probably just a few hundred people that were permanent residents there in that town. However, when the, the Roman census came and it drew everybody back to their, uh, the birthplace of their forefathers, it was believed that that same town swelled to over 25,000 people. So no wonder that there was no room in the inn, correct? Today, in case you're curious, the stated population is around 25,000 of Bethlehem, and yet it still experiences probably even a grander swelling because according to one website on tourism says that they experience 1.2 million visitors per year and often the uh, Christmas Eve uh, service in the church, the nativity, is broadcast worldwide, and people watch with great interest there. So here is a town, and we give it priority, and we give it focus today because God gives it focus in the Word. He called attention to a geographic location. When we think about Mary... It was stated that by the angel, blessed are you among women. Well, she was blessed because of the opportunity that was hers. She was not chosen because she was already blessed. In other words, she didn't have some sort of special virtue apart from God's gift of grace upon her. But she certainly enjoyed the blessedness of being the bearer of the Son of God. Uh, we would say the same thing about Bethlehem. There was really nothing that that drew its special attraction. We tend to think this way when uh, when w- there are big events that happen, such as the Olympics. Really, decades in advance, towns, cities are vying for that privilege of of pulling the Summer Olympics that happens once every four years to their town and and trying to do. Uh, studies to show why they ought to award their city with the privilege of hosting the Olympics. And they go through a lot of retrofitting of the entire municipality to to get ready for that. And so that they can say, you know, we, because we're such a, a great city, we got this. Well, Bethlehem wasn't able to say because they were such a fabulous village. They obtain the privilege of being the birthplace of the Son of God. But they are definitely blessed as being forever known as the place where the Lord Lord Jesus Christ laid down his sweet head. So the question is this. What can we practically learn today for our own edification, for our own benefit, as we're reminded of the town of Bethlehem? And I want us to examine just a few things today, four thoughts today, that hopefully will be an encouragement to us as we think about Bethlehem, maybe even as we sing that song in the future. First of all, Bethlehem should remind us of God's provision for us. When we think about that town, we should think about how God has provided something very special for us. Well, let's go back and Ask the question: Well, how did Bethlehem even get started? Well, according to First Chronicles chapter two and verse fifty-one, and I'm going to cite some references. I'm not necessarily going to turn to all of these for sake of time. You're welcome to jot these down. But in First Chronicles chapter two and verse fifty-one, we find the mention of a man by the name of Salma, S-A-L-M-A. Who is he? Turns out he's the grandson of Caleb, the one of the two spies. That had enough trust in God to go into the the, the Canaanite land and come back with a good report that if God said that they could have the land, then certainly they could. Caleb was also the one that in his 80s said, You know what? I I want the hard spot. Give me that mountain. In fact, there's a a wonderful gospel hymn that we sometimes sing that, that comes from that part of his story. Well, Salma had a wonderful legacy. He certainly had a wonderful role model to follow. And he didn't lose any time in being a man of initiative and and doing something. We don't know. The Bible doesn't give us, delineate any details for us. But the fact that he started a a little village there, probably just moving there with his own family and starting it up, tells us at least one thing. It had good roots. It had a, a wonderful foundation, no doubt of a man that had a good teaching of what it meant to trust God and follow the Lord. The name Bethlehem is, is a two-part Hebrew word, Beth, which simply means house of, and the second portion of it is the idea of bread. So Bethlehem is house of bread. How it got that name, uh, whether it was uh, Uh, named specifically balsama or someone else, we're not told. Uh, Maybe there was uh, the idea that uh, they had prosperous crops. It was a very fertile area, is a very fertile area, especially for growing of crops. And perhaps for that reason, the the wheat crops perhaps produced a lot of, of bread for people that lived there. But Jesus, when we think about house of bread, I think it's interesting, and and not just a coincidence, but perhaps intentional by God, that Jesus would be known by many things. And we talk about the I am's of Jesus. One of the I am's is I am the way, the truth, and the life. But there's another I am that, that goes to the town of Bethlehem, and Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He often taught that man cannot live by bread alone. He used that during his temptation against Satan in the wilderness, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus wasn't referring to the kind of loaf that's made from wheat grown in the ground, but he was making reference to the the staff of life, if you would, that which gives vitality, nourishment, helps us to be able to exist and flourish in our lives and jesus was using that as an analogy for how we need him spiritually and as we internalize christ in our relationship with him we come to know him as savior and as we walk with him and love him and devote ourselves to him we'll find a strength that comes from jesus christ on a daily basis that we can't achieve any other place There is no substitute for the Lord Jesus Christ. Bethlehem as a city is about five miles south, a little southwest of Jerusalem. It's so fertile because Bethlehem sits on an enormous aquifer, great water source. And because of that, it eventually became the water source for Jerusalem around 200 B.C., uh, they began to, of course, the Roman Empire was was great at developing a, a pipe system, and you can still go places. Uh, there's places in Turkey when I was there in 2007 where you could still see uh, the Roman aqueducts and the and the pipes that they made out of clay and so forth like that to carry water. And so Bethlehem became sort of a, a water source for Jerusalem in this way. There were so many Jewish pilgrims coming to Jerusalem that the city couldn't cope with the water needs from its own personal wells. And after a time, the older water supply was contaminated because, interestingly enough, of the animals that were being slaughtered in the temple. Without being too picturesque about this, uh, they were not careful. In fact, part of the, the, the Levites and the priests going about their duties, uh, they did not... Uh, try to capture a lot of the blood that came forth from the slaying. And, and the numbers of people that came to offer sacrifices sometimes kept the, the priest quite busy throughout the day. And so really there was a, really a flow of blood and it would seep down into eventually uh, the water system as they tried to wash off at the end of the day uh, the presence of that animal blood there. They needed fresh water. Well, where was that going to come from? Well, it was going to come from Bethlehem. Interestingly enough, Jesus was not only referred to or referred to himself as the analogy of bread, but we remember when he meets the woman of Cana in John 4 that he refers to himself as living water. If someone would drink of him, they would never thirst. And Of course, she didn't get it right away, did she? She still was thinking about literal water until eventually it did dawn on her that he was talking in spiritual terms, and she gloriously came to know Christ as her Savior. But all this is to remind us, whether we're talking about the consumption of Christ in, in, in the analogy of bread, or the, the living, sustaining water, that we can become so dehydrated in this world that we live in, spiritually speaking, and dried out because of the parchedness that we feel of of just being beaten down upon, and and the refreshment that we receive from Christ being our Savior, that living water. We're reminded to us, what a wonderful thing it is that God provided for us His Son to be that for us. That it's just not a matter of getting an ability to check off the box that, yes, I'm saved. But I have Christ in me, and that's my hope of glory. And so as we think about Bethlehem, let's think about God's provision for us. Secondly, as we think about Bethlehem, we should be reminded of our personal need of salvation. Our personal need of salvation. So many people don't come to God, don't come to Christ, because they don't perceive of their lost condition. As one preacher put it, you really can't get someone saved until you get them lost first. And I understand what he means by that. Really, it's them coming to that understanding, that enlightenment. I'm not okay spiritually. Most people out there feel like that they are okay or they've come up with an alternate path in their life to make them okay. And there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, the Bible tells us. But those ways are the way of death. And so we are reminded that we need saved. We are not okay. So how does this come out of the town of Bethlehem? Well, there's first of all what I call a ruinous reference As we think about Bethlehem, there is a shadow of death that hangs over this quaint village of Bethlehem. For all of its charm, for all of its nostalgia that we imagine in our mind, there is this specter, if you would, that the Bible gives to us. The very first time the city is mentioned in the Bible, it's in connection with the nearby vicinity that is called Ephrathah. And Ephrathah became the burial place of Rachel, the wife of the patriarch Jacob. You can read about that in Genesis thirty-five nineteen and also Genesis 48, 7. It was a, a mournful, grievous death for her. There was sadness. And there is a time for weeping. And we weep with those that weep. We don't pretend that physical death doesn't come with a heaviness about it, though the New Testament reminds us we don't sorrow as those that have no hope, though, as believers. Praise God. But yet, death is an enemy. And and death has its... There is coming that day where death will be vanquished by Christ completely. And what a day that will be. But Bethlehem was also found in the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, it has an association with a very grotesque sort of death as well. Not a very well-known story, but in Judges 19 and 20, and it's not very well-known because it's quite graphic, and I won't go into all the details about it. But there was a a Levite from the tribe of Ephraim. The Bible tells us that he had a concubine, she's not named, and he goes into a a community, uh, Gibeah, and there the wicked men of the town, very similar to what happened in Sodom with Lot when the angels came to visit him by night, while this Levite is in town visiting a somewhat pious man, uh, the men of the town come out and demand that uh, this Levite be given over to them so that they can have their way with him sexually. And, of course, the, the owner of the home refuses this. Uh, it still ends up very tragically with this man, this Levite's concubine, being thrust out of the door into the street. And the men are brutal with her all through the night, and she is found dead the next day. The Levite takes her back home with him and uh, decides to make uh, a statement by chopping her, her lifeless body into 12 pieces and sending those pieces to the different tribes to explain that uh, this is what those people did and we need to rally against them. And it almost resulted in the destruction of a significant portion of the tribe of Benjamin because of this. Really a horrific story, an infamous story in the Bible and all of it kind of circulates around this, this town of Bethlehem where the Levite had come from. It was his, his home place and the sadness that was about there. You know, the Bible doesn't mask the problems that sin brings about. There is a penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. And here in Micah even, as we read, We have the prophecy of the infamous murder of the babes, the small children in Bethlehem by order of Herod. And uh, and so we we need to be reminded of that this is going to be a time of of great sorrow. And Jesus, only because of the angelic uh, message that is given to them, does Joseph and Mary flee Bethlehem to avoid the infanticide that Herod brings about on that community. Rachel is weeping for her children. So there's a ruinous reference that is very sad. And there is a ruinous reference to us as human beings apart from Christ. There is there's really nothing joyous you can really say truthfully about someone that is without Christ there may be kind deeds that they did in their life but in the end it is really all overshadowed by the reality that when they depart from this life they go into eternal death a separation that will be painful and depressing and discouraging and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth where their warm dieth not the Bible paints a very vivid picture of what an existence into eternity is like for those that experience eternal death. It's ruinous. But there is also, praise God, when we think about Bethlehem, a redemptive reference to it. And we find this in other places of the Bible, another place where we find the, the Uh, village of Bethlehem mentioned, is the wonderful story of the book of Ruth. As depressing as the book of Judges can be, Ruth is a 180 degrees from that, if you would. Not that it doesn't have its sadness to it, because you have a woman that becomes a widow, then she loses her two sons. But the bulk of the story is about Naomi coming back home from Moab with her one daughter-in-law, Ruth, And where does she come to? Well, you may not have remembered this, but she's from and returns to the town of Bethlehem. She comes back. She even asked to be called Mara because she's bitter. There's a sadness about this. Don't call me uh, Naomi anymore. But again, before the story ends, we find a wonderful message of redemption. Because there's a man named Boaz, it's a near kinsman, and, and he, as a, uh, an inhabitant of Bethlehem as well, realizes that there is a virtue in Ruth that he sees as she's gleaning, coming behind the labors and how she's taking care of her mother-in-law with no real promise that she's going to get a future husband out of her mother-in-law. Yet she just came out of true love and because she's decided to make Naomi's God her God. And because of that, God blesses her, and Ruth is redeemed by Boaz. He takes her to himself as his wife. Of course, Ruth ends up being in the lineage of Christ. And what a wonderful thing that is. But that redemption is a reminder to us that we all have an abysmal background with no hope in ourselves, nothing that this world can offer us. But God, in His mercy and His grace, offers redemption at His wonderful, omnipotent hand. Not because of any good that we have done. It's not the, in the righteousness which we have done, but it's according to His mercy that He saves us, Titus 3.5 tells us. So there's a redemptive reference that is associated with the town of Bethlehem. But then also dealing with our salvation, not just the ruinous reference of being sinners and the redemptive reference of now being bought back by the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice, but there is a regal reference. You see, the prophet Samuel, in the town of Bethlehem, anoints a future king for the throne. It is David. David was overlooked understated an afterthought even by his own earthly father we might add when he was putting forth all of his sons the prophet had to ask don't you have any other sons because i know i'm supposed to anoint someone from your from one of your boys and well there is this one son of mine isn't that something and yet i think even that's a foreshadowing of our savior Because there was no comeliness, there was no beauty that we should desire him. And yet, Jesus Christ, much like his predecessor, ends up being a very impressive king. David is lauded by those that come after him. He is the gold standard, if we could say, of kings. And really all other kings are measured as you read through your Old Testament chronicles and books of kings as to whether they did right or didn't do right as did David their father. And yet it all began as Samuel took a horn of olive oil and poured it over the head of this teenage boy for the day that he would future be coronated and sit on the throne. Well, the Bible tells us that We are a royal priesthood. There is a royalness. Even Jesus told his own disciples, which carries forth importance for us, that someday we shall judge angels. And so we become princes in the heavenly sense because of the position that we hold in Jesus Christ. And so as you think about your salvation Think about how Jesus takes us from our ruinous background and takes us to a new height by his redemptive work and prepares for us a regal ending and future someday. But there is yet a third thing that we should be reminded of as we look at Bethlehem, and that is of our supreme motive. What is it that causes us to do what we do? While it's true that Jesus came to the world, And that he came to us. God the Father states that Jesus' birth means that he came forth unto me. That's actually what it says here in Micah 5 2. Look down at the middle part of the verse. He says, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall He, Jesus, come forth unto who? Me, God, speaking in this sense. This is an often overlooked statement that teaches the sovereignty of God and the whole plan of redemption. We tend to think, and yes, it's true, Jesus came to save me. And that's a wonderful thought. But we need to be careful lest we think there was something so wonderful about me that Jesus couldn't help himself. Nothing could be farther from the truth. If you hold your place here and look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 7, I want you to see a passage that makes reference to the superiority of Christ as our Savior over the sacrificial systems of the animals in the Old Testament that the Jews had been following based on God the Father's guidelines. And beginning at verse 4 of Hebrews 10, it says this, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. No one's sins was actually removed because they brought an animal sacrifice. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, referring to Jesus, he saith, Sacrifice and offerings, thou, referring to the Heavenly Father, thou wouldest not, you didn't want those animal sacrifices, but a body, A human body, a physical body. Hast thou prepared me? A reference to the incarnation of Christ. He was giving a human body. Verse 6. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. In the sense that he was pleased that they were being obedient and in faith looking forward to what Jesus would someday do as the Lamb of God, which would take away the sin of the world. But not pleasure in the sense that God was satisfied that those animal sacrifices in and of themselves were taking care of the problem. Verse 7 Then said I, Jesus speaking, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Let me restate that phrase, leaving out what's in parentheses, so you can get the emphasis of what he's saying. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He doesn't say, Lo, I come because I just have such compassion for those sinners. Ultimately, what drove Christ to the cross was to do the will of his Father. That is verified by the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was struggling because he knew what he was in for. And he prayed for some alternative. And yet, he, though he sweat great drops of blood, his prayer that is given to us is, Nevertheless, not my will, but what? Thine be done. Thine be done. And so we need to be reminded that we are so, so, so undeserving of Jesus' birth and His eventual sacrificial death. While He did it for our benefit, don't get me wrong, Jesus was most consumed with doing the will of the Father. This is what He agonized over in that garden. This is what He meant when He said in John four thirty four, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. That's what, if we could put it in today's terms, that's what got Jesus up every day and got him through every day, despite the scorning, the scoffing, the misunderstandings, the mistreatments. It was because he was driven to do what his Heavenly Father wanted him to do. Why is this important for us? Well, it helps us to be humble about our salvation, wouldn't you say? (laughs) Wasn't it? I was so irresistible that he just had to come for me. But, but let's turn it around and think about us now as ambassadors for Christ. We're called upon to serve God. We're called upon to work with the lost, just as Jesus came with compassion to the lost. But friend, you need to know this if you haven't already hit it several times. You and I will rarely receive enough motivation from the individuals around us to keep doing what we do. We'll never get enough appreciation from people expressing thank yous and gratitude for sharing the gospel with them to make it worth our while to live the Christian life. It's not going to happen. We won't get enough satisfaction within ourselves to think, well, you know, I'm doing this for myself. No. But if we are regularly reminded of our call to do the will of God, us, as sons of God, then there is our motivation. That's what helps us to get up every day and say, what wilt thou have me to do? And it is for that precise reason that we need to be consumed with God's will. And the Bible tells us about the importance of being motivated by God's will. Because it's God's will, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, we are to give thanks in the midst of everything. doesn't matter what it is, how difficult it is. We should still have a spirit of thanksgiving to God and praise to him. That's God's will. You can't look at the circumstances or people around you and have a genuine compulsion to always have a spirit of gratitude. But if you're saying, but God wants me to do it, and I want to please my Heavenly Father, that will help you be motivated. Because it is God's will, you are to abstain from all immorality. And I don't need to tell you how strong the magnetism of, of sexual impurity is in our culture. But it was there as you read through history and the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's always been there. The marriage bed is undefiled in all. But if abused outside of that, if if drawn into and and enjoyed outside of that. Proverbs has lots of warnings about that. It's it's like a man taking coals into his bosom. How does he not think he's going to be burned by that? The Bible tells us a shame and a reproach will he get and it will never be wiped away. You say, yes, but preacher, you don't realize how strong the impulse is to give in just a little bit, to look at those pictures and to, you know, have, have just a, a little play in the mind about it. it. It gives me a little bit of a relief for the moment. You don't realize how I don't feel satisfied in other areas of my life. And, and so, you know, that. but God says, let it not be once named among you. So how am I supposed to find motivation to live at that standard? Because it's God's will. And I want to do God's will. Because it's God's will, we are to submit to man's laws. (laughs) 1 Peter 2.15 tells us that. Do you find that some of man's laws are a little hard to abide by sometimes? Do they inconvenience you sometimes? Do they even seem to sometimes get in the way of the work of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ? And yet we're told to look at these individuals and legislators as the ministers of God appointed to us by God. And God says, you know what? Don't look at them, no matter who's in power and who's in office, and say, you know, I'll kind of weigh it out, and I don't feel very motivated to honor this legislation or to honor these laws because of who made them. But you better say this, because my heavenly Father says so, I need to obey man's laws. Because it's God's will, Ephesians 6.6 teaches us, we are to work diligently for our employers. Yeah, but I'm over here and I am busting myself like crazy and he's not doing anything. And he's he's showing favoritism to this lazy person over here. So why should I, you know, pour myself out and kill myself at my be industrious? When nobody else seems to be doing it. And then at the end of the day, after I'm being honest and not stealing from him and being very correct on my timesheet, he doesn't have a kind word to say for me because I don't go out drinking with him like the other guys do that aren't being as industrious. And the answer is because my heavenly father says so. And where's our example? In Jesus Christ himself. Look at what he came for. A world of vile sinners that would ultimately, the very city that he comes to offer himself, turns on him, mocks him, and says, we don't want you. In fact, we're going to kill you. We're going to execute you. And yet, he went through with it anyway. How can we say, I can't do our Father's will. We've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Fourthly, As we think about Bethlehem, we should be reminded that it is the best government coming. The best government that we can ever understand is ahead of us. (laughs) I don't spend a lot of time, I spend a little bit of time, but I don't spend a lot of time following the news. I find if I get a little three-minute at the top of the hour or something like that or skim through My what I call my news aggregate on my smartphone or something like that. That's about all I can stomach, about all I need to know. I don't think Washington's going to be calling me and asking me for my opinion on legislation. I need to be able to be a good shepherd to you folks. There is a balance where you spend so much time sitting in front of the news sources, and you know this to be true, that you begin to develop a little bitter spirit and there's a lot of Christian curmudgeons out there because they just need to turn their TV sets off. Truthfully, we shouldn't expect America to be a theocracy. It's not. It's a democracy. It's technically a republic. I understand those that split the hairs there. The truth of the matter is, it's not a perfect system of government. doesn't matter how conscientious and how much I pray and... What else I do? We're never, no matter who's in office, no matter if it's completely filled with your favored political party, it's, it's still run by sinners. But notice what it says here in Micah 5 2. It talks about a ruler in Israel. That's who's coming. Jesus coming to be a ruler in Israel. Well, I, preacher, I've read through the four Gospels. <laughs> I never saw Jesus appointed for any public office. I mean, in and, and, and fact, he came a little close at one point, you know. But uh, he never actually took office. But it is a ruler in Israel that is looked for in this town. Any person that knew the Scriptures... And you didn't have to be a highly skilled wise man. If you were a member of the Jewish synagogue as a man, chances are you knew this teaching right here. Someone could stop you on the street and said, trivia question, where will the Messiah be born? Answer, Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Of course, they didn't have chapter and verses back then, but the prophet Micah. So when the wise men, the Magi, come to the capital city of Jerusalem, and it makes sense, that's where the present king is, Herod, and they're looking for the baby king, the new king. Herod's counselors, and interesting enough, Herod himself didn't know, Herod's counselors knew the scripture taught that he would be born in Bethlehem. That's the location. There had not been a king of the Davidic line in over 400 years at this point. This is what the Jewish community was actually craving. Everybody wanted this. There were false individuals that tried to stand up and claim to be this. This is why they welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem one week ahead of his resurrection from the grave, the way they did. We, we call it Palm Sunday, right? And it is... An, The contrast between that and the day of his crucifixion, or even the day of his trial, the night of his trial we should say, is such a stark contrast. I mean, you can't define fickleness any better than what happens between those days of that week in Jerusalem. But they're hollering out, Hosanna, a term that is then explained by the next word, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they were thinking at that moment, this is the, the next king of Israel. Perhaps they knew he was of the royal lineage of David. In fact, we understand that he was of that royal, and Brother Stan brought this out in a great devotional yesterday in the men's uh, prayer time together. He was of the royal lineage of David legally because of Joseph, even though Joseph wasn't his biological father. He still was more or less what we would call his adoptive father. And so legally, he was of the line of David through him. But he was also of the line of David genetically because Mary was also of that line. We know that his first coming, and that's what we're talking about when we read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's Jesus' first coming in the cradle, in the manger. It was about him being a slain sacrifice. He did not come to sit on the throne. He came to be nailed on a cross. You say, but preacher, you just talked about here that he's going to be a ruler in Israel. Well, like a lot of prophecies in one little tiny verse, you might have two very vast time periods talked about here. And so, yeah, he is born in Bethlehem, which has already happened. And he is a ruler, but he's not ruling yet. But praise God, guess what, folks? He is going to be someday. I want to read for you Isaiah 11 if you want to turn there. This will be the last passage we look at this morning. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. Prophetic of what it's going to be like at the second coming of Christ. Of course, borrowing references to what substantiates or gives him the credibility to be that ruler when he comes again someday. Isaiah 11, verse 1 says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Picture that stump, because the idea is it's cut off, and and for hundreds of years there's like nothing happening, but all of a sudden, boom, up comes this branch. That's Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. Why? Because he's God. He looks on the heart. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with the equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, a reference of the tribulation to come. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked, a reference to the battle of Armageddon most likely. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf, now we're getting into what the millennial reign of Christ will look like for a thousand years once he becomes king. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a child shall lead them. Those in the animal kingdom that have been enemies and would prey on one another or prey one upon the other, this is all going to dramatically change because the Prince of Peace will now be sitting on the throne and will bring in a peace like no one has ever seen before. Look down at verse 8. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the ass. No mother will be saying, get away from there. There's a, that's a snake hole. Oh, it's okay. Go ahead. King Jesus is on the throne. That snake can't hurt you. They shall not hurt, verse 9. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, verse 10. And in that day shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign or a banner of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and I love this last phrase, and his rest shall be glorious. His rest. You know, governments are trying to bring rest to their citizens in different ways. Some have tried different forms of of government that have said, "We'll, we'll pay for everything but tax you heavily. Others have said, we're going to be... You know, a a complete demagoguery, if you would. We're going to say, you know, it's this way. We're not even going to give you a vote. You know, it's always falling apart, and even republics are a mess in most cases. You can't bring about peace when there's spiritual warfare in the hearts of humanity. When we are setting our affections on things above, How can we be distraught with the way the heathens rage right now? I mean, when we're really thinking, but I'm an alien and I'm a pilgrim. I'm I'm here for the time being, but this is not my final home. And why should I be surprised at what I hear on the news? Why should I be surprised at what happens in Washington? Why should I be surprised at what happens in South American countries? It grieves our hearts because it ought to grieve us as the Holy Spirit lives within us and we see sin out there. But it's not for us to sit around and wring our hands over. We ought to fold them and pray. We ought to be concerned and grieved, but never distraught. Not forsaken, though we feel cast down. Colossians 3.1, I love this verse. It says, if ye then be, be risen with Christ. Friend, do you know Christ is your Savior? Then the Bible says, then you are alive in Him. You are risen from your deadness of sins. You've cast off of that, the, the, the shroud of spiritual death. You are alive and vibrant in Jesus Christ. And so think about that as you get up every day. I am risen in Christ well, what should I do if I'm risen in Christ? He goes on to say, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth, present tense, on the right hand of God. Truth of the matter is, Jesus will reign on earth someday in the millennial reign, but he is reigning as king right now in heaven. And that is where our allegiance and our focus is to be. And so as we think about the little town of Bethlehem, Think, I am so happy that He didn't just come as my Savior. And and this world, this planet, and its existence is just going to continue to be a mess, but I'll get out of here someday. No, this is going to be fixed too. John saw that new earth coming down. What a joy it's going to be. We sang, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Really, that's a reference not to His first coming, as some people think, but really a reference to the second coming. As you analyze the teaching of those verses, it's talking about how glorious it's going to be, though that this creation travaileth, waiting for its redemption. It knows it's going to receive it someday as Redeemer and King comes back and makes everything new. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, Such a small little town, but packed with so much wonderful reminders and truths for us. May God help us to cling to that hope. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the teaching of scripture. Lord, how humbling and how thrilling it is to see your sovereign selection of even where Christ was born. For us as human beings, sometimes labor comes upon a woman at at unexpected times, and though she may have planned exactly where she intended to have that child, it doesn't happen that way. She's tried to figure it all out so that things will just fall into the right place, and and yet there's there's curveballs that happen. And yet this was planned, even the very birthplace of Christ, from the very foundations of the world. And even all the other players and what happens in the Bible in this community, Lord, it seems to be foreshadowings of teaching for us all surrounding the birthplace of our Savior. And though he was not given the welcome that he really should have been given that night as his mother came into town, Great with child, Lord, we thank you that someday we will have the chance in your presence to sing and proclaim our admiration and devotion as we have the chance to do it here on earth right now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.